Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with the WWE edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, it is Tuesday once again. So the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, and Vintage Chris Vanini are here to break down everything in the world of WWE, SmackDown, Raw, and everything in between on this loaded show. We are just under two weeks away from WWE Hell in a Cell, the final pay-per-view, I think we can call it, of the pandemic era before fans come back for Money in the Bank and SummerSlam. And the big news this week, at least in WWE's eyes, is that SummerSlam has officially been set for Saturday, August 21st at Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas, Nevada. I believe it is being listed as the first ever football stadium show for a SummerSlam in the event's history. And by my calculation, it's the first Saturday SummerSlam for the company since the 90s. I believe they taped one in England, in the United Kingdom on a Saturday and aired it that following Sunday. So some interesting notes here as WWE moves toward bringing crowds back, moves towards its two big pay-per-views, two of its four biggest pay-per-views of the year, really, in Money in the Bank and SummerSlam a few months out. But we're not here to talk about that today. We're talking the build to Hell in a Cell. We're talking about what is going on this week, this past week, in the world of WWE. And here, once again, to break it all down with me, none other than vintage Chris Vanini. Chris, I got to say, we're taping this shortly after... Raw went off the air on Monday night, and this week in WWE was a little bit of a mix-up for me because I thought SmackDown probably put forward its weakest show in months, while I thought Raw put forward its strongest show in months. And I'm not saying, to clarify before you attack me, that Raw (laughs) was better than SmackDown. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying, especially compared to the average Raw was way better than it normally is. And SmackDown wasn't necessarily way worse, but I felt like it took a couple steps down from the normal SmackDown we get on Friday nights. It did. And I can't help but wonder how much the cuts of last week played a role in that. I I mean, we had just started an Aleister Black Big E feud that had to get dropped. So SmackDown kind of had to change a lot of things on the fly. I'm sure that Probably played a little bit of a role in terms of the planning, but it's it's a weird spot here for WWE right now because, like you said, we're coming up on Hell in a Cell, but we know we're a little we're we're little more than a month away from WWE going back on tour, and that's what they're hyping up. And we've got Money in the Bank and SummerSlam coming, so we know Hell in a Cell is not going to be a transformative pay per view, but they still have to build it up as such, and we're still in the Thunderdome while AEW is now performing in front of full crowds. And I think it. I, I'm, I'm starting to notice it. I mean, AEW has had fans for a while, but it was sparse here and there. The last couple of weeks now with AEW having a full crowd, I'm back to realizing, oh, the Thunderdome is an empty stadium. And for a while, I hadn't. So WWE's kind of in this weird purgatory probably for the next month or so before they really get rolling into touring and Money in the Bank and everything. So uh, it, it's a weird time, but I have to say, I agree. Raw put forth a really strong effort uh, for, for, for the show here. I'm going to tell you something. You say that about the Thunderdome and technically you're not wrong, but if you're just looking at Friday, I prefer the Thunderdome to whatever that strange ass atmosphere was 
that we got for Dynamite. I thought Dynamite on Friday, and we talked about it, I talked about it in a quick AEW recap show that you can find on our uh, podcast tab, our, our list of episodes. I thought it was one of the strangest Dynamites that we've gotten in its history. And talk about low energy. I mean, I know it was Friday at 10 o'clock, but holy shit, that crowd seemed like it didn't want to be there. The show was terrible. Um, There's nothing to really get excited about. I prefer the Thunderdome to that. Now, I don't think that's what we're going to get on a normal basis, but it was like we got a Lafayette, Louisiana crowd in Jacksonville, Florida for one hour. I, I didn't understand what was going on there. Well, we, we like the people of Lafayette. Don't worry. They got a good football team there. Um, but no, I, you're right. If, if you're going to have a bad show, better to not have. If you're going to have a bad show, right. better to not have fans, I guess. I guess that's the lesson we, we, we've kind of learned here over the last couple of weeks. But I'm OK. Like, I, yes, you're right, though, in general. Like if you looked at, for example, the double or nothing crowd, right? Yeah. You compare that to the Thunderdome. It really does go to show you and, and the WrestleMania crowd too. how much fans are truly missing from this product. And you also wonder, hey, how would storylines have been different? How would WWE do certain things differently if there are fans reacting live to what's going on? So I'm really curious to find out what that's going to be like for WWE, because when they do come back the Friday before Money in the Bank and and onward, by the way, the day they're coming back just so happens to be my birthday, July 16th, uh, they are really going to start this new kind of era in WWE. And I'm going to be curious to see how the fans react to people like Riddle and Omas and Bianca Belair now that she's champion and Rhea Ripley, because despite them liking Rhea Ripley, it's been a little rough for her at the beginning as Raw Women's Champion. So all of this certainly remains to be seen. It's not really why we're here or what we're here to talk about, I should say, this week. But it is curious. And I'll tell you, If Raw can build upon the show that we got Monday night, then I can maybe start to believe in it a little bit again because they put out some really interesting storylines and some hints of things that may be coming soon that the Silver King would certainly get excited about. Now, we're going to get to all of that momentarily, but on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast at the start of the show, we take care of business. This is, after all, the business we've chosen. And this business, the Getting Over business, it's all about one thing. It's all about and that means heading on over to Apple Podcasts, dropping a five-star rating, five-star rating and review for your favorite wrestling podcast. Tell people how much you love this program. We jumped up to the number 34 podcast for wrestling in the United States last week, and that is because of your continued reviews and ratings and sharing the, friend, the the episodes with your friends and family, all of that shit is really important. And I appreciate when you guys do that. I also appreciate when you head on over to Twitter and give us a follow at Getting Overcast, where you can get live tweeting during the four major TV shows, episode drops, you can participate in polls, send in DM and tweet questions that we will read live on the show. And we do have a couple of those today. So with all of that out of the way, it is time for us to begin the show as we always do. And that is by sliding into the main event. And Chris, also as we always do here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, at least recently, probably the last, I don't know, four to six months, we will start with Roman Reigns. Mm. Uh, Reigns opened SmackDown on Friday addressing the Usos title opportunity, saying he changed his mind and approved of it because of Paul Heyman's counsel. Jay acknowledged Reigns, who wanted the same acknowledgement from Jimmy, 
But he said that he already did that at Hell in a Cell last year when Reigns choked them out. Reigns said he expected them to win since they were going to go ahead, challenge for the titles, and call their shot, and that the family was watching. So we got to open the show. The SmackDown Tag Team Championship, the Mysterios, defending against the Usos. Jay countered Ray's sliding splash with a Samoan drop into the announce table. Dominic got a hot tag. Uh, Tope Suicida and Escalera Tornado DDT onto Jimmy. He kicked out a 2.5 after an assisted Samoan drop and got caught with a super kick. But Dominic blocked the Samoan splash with his knees and folded Jimmy over for the 1-2-3. I thought the finish of the match was sloppy and Jimmy's shoulder was clearly up on the referee's blind side, which was immediately pointed out by commentary and was a planned part of the storyline. So that's a good thing. Uh, The segment at the top of the show, Chris, with Reigns, I thought was extremely enjoyable. But this match, the first match, we'll get into what happened after, was nothing special. Ray and Dominic once again wrestled as complete individuals, despite both being there at the bell this time. So while I didn't expect the exact finish with the shoulder being up, it was so obvious that the Mysterios were never going to lose this. They would retain the titles and that it would somehow be Jimmy's fault to continue that consternation with Reigns. So I guess what I'm trying to say is the start of the show for me was just okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm not gonna lie. I thought the the one, two, three was a mistake because uh, because we've had oh, a couple, we've had a couple of those uh, in in the last couple of months, and so I thought they messed up, and I thought they were gonna play into it. So for for a, a bit there in SmackDown, they really had me, and then obviously you kind of figure it out and they they go from there. But uh, uh, it, that was a very creative way to do it where it's just simply on the ref's blind side and he doesn't see it. The ref was in a bad position. Like it's a perfectly understandable way as opposed to someone cheating, someone with a foot on the rope and he didn't see. So there were, there were different ways to do it. That that got me. It was really good. And I'm trying to remember there was, there was a moment where Roman called Jay Jimmy. Was that before or after this match? It was after. So we're getting to it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, let me go over that. So, so it, was, it was a surprising and interesting start to the show for sure. It was, yeah. Uh, the, and by the way, folks, the reason why we break this up be, is because, and we'll talk about it, this takes up half of SmackDown. Yeah. Like, things involving Roman Reigns, we've been talking about it for the last two weeks. They take up 50% of the show. So for us to break it all down and, like, me to tell you all everything that happened at once and then Chris to respond after just doesn't make sense. So we break it up into multiple short segments. That way we can kind of attack each point individually. So backstage after this match, as Chris alluded to, Jimmy told Reigns they got cheated. Reigns legit screamed at him, saying they lost to a child after Jimmy called his shot and said they were going to win the titles. Reigns said he wanted Jimmy to fix it before the night was out. He wasn't clear on what that would be. And then he criticized them for being six-time tag team champions who have only been on WrestleMania once. He then gaslighted them by calling Jay by Jimmy's name And then when Jay pointed that out, saying it doesn't matter who is who, if they're just going to lose like this, calling back to Jimmy's or sorry, Jay's promo. Funny that I just did that, by the way, Um, (laughs) that we mentioned that was a callback last week. And obviously that he did about a year ago at this time. And then backstage, Adam Pierce and Sonya Deville set a rematch and didn't really take much convincing for them to do that. So we got a rematch in the main event. The Mysterios against the Usos once again for the SmackDown tag team titles. I really couldn't believe they ran this back on the exact same show. Ray hit a sliding splash on Jimmy and dodged Jay into the ring post. Then he got Jimmy with the 619. But Roman Reigns comes in out of nowhere, knocks Dominic off the top rope with a Superman punch for the DQ. Then Reigns spears Ray 
screamed at Jimmy and absolutely murdered both Mysterios outside the ring with the steel steps. He finished with a guillotine on Dominic as Jimmy pleaded for him to stop and Reigns stared down Jay to end the show. So this is the first time, Chris, that Reigns interfered or helped either of the Usos in a match, which made it notable. It also seemed to set up a title match with Ray for Hell in a Cell, given Reigns doesn't have another opponent. But other than that one piece of storytelling, I thought this was unspectacular and quite predictable. The backstage elements in totality were great as always, but the in-ring storytelling that we got in the opening match and in the main event both contributed to what I said earlier in the show, SmackDown being one of the most boring episodes that we've had in months. It's it. I'm 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 also surprised that they ran it back on the same show. I mean, we talked about last week that Roman Reigns stuff is now taking up half the show, and not only did that happen again here, but they literally ran back a match twice. Now again, I did the, they, I did the math for you: a uh, forty-minute opening segment, and then okay. the final seventeen minutes. So yeah. it took fifty-seven of one hundred and twenty minutes of TV. Yeah, even even more than that. So so and and again, now again, this might be partly a reaction to cuts and maybe they had to change a couple things at the last minute that they had, but, but, but still it, it, it's a lot, but what I will say is that it, it was the same with, with Cesaro and Rollins stuff in a couple weeks. The Roman Reigns stuff is not just about Roman Reigns. It's tying together several stories here. We've got Roman and Jay. We've got Jimmy and Jay. We've got the Usos and the Mysterios battling for the tag titles and now we might have Roman and Ray. So right. at least the SmackDown's credit, they're not hitting us over the head with the same thing. They are bringing other people in and weaving them into separate stories. So is it too much for a show? Is 57 minutes out of 120 or an hour 20, whatever, too much? Yeah, it's probably too much. But I do think they're at least trying to uh, adjust a little bit. And also going back real quick to the promo after they lost, Yelling that they lost to a child, yeah, that popped great. me, yeah. and uh, and as well as talking about um, and then calling him Jimmy J and going back because Roman said a week ago he said back when you were the Usos, people said which one is that and and now they don't so um, it, it's a lot yes but I I do believe at least in the context of the story that they're telling they're still telling I think a very good story well yeah I mean they, they are telling a good story so there's no question about that and yes. Everything that happens backstage, the stuff with Reigns interacting with them, it's all golden. I got a couple tweets that came in when I, I think I tweeted something like this that it took up half the show again. And someone said, well, it's the best thing on SmackDown and, and candidly the best thing in wrestling. It so is. if anything was going to take up half of a show, for it to be that is a good thing. And there's some truth to that. But when you have a two-hour television program, for a single wrestling brand and you have, you know, two other championships on that show by taking half of the time all consumed with one storyline, whether it's a small storyline or whether it's a large storyline like this, it affects everything else because there were two other matches on SmackDown that lasted a combined five minutes. That's ridiculous. And why did they last a combined five minutes? Because you had two tag team title matches on one show that probably between them took up 35 minutes when you only really needed to have one. I understand that storytelling and they did it for a reason. But again, 
57 minutes was one storyline over the course of the show. And of the five total matches on SmackDown this past Friday, all of them ended with either an attack, a schmoz finish, an interference, or the one that didn't was two minutes long. That's a problem. That's, that's just not a good wrestling product over two hours. Your, your storytelling for whatever is going to take up half the show can be the strongest thing in the world. But if I can't get anything else out of the show, then as a viewer, by the time I'm done, I'm not going to be that pleased. And I could love half of it. But if the other half isn't good, it it brings down that other half. Now, look, this is the first time we've talked about it taking up half the show for weeks now. This is the first time I really felt it actually legitimately affected the other half. There have been times where women's matches only got four minutes where we'd say it's because Reigns got so much time. But it wasn't just the women this time. It was literally everything else on the show was affected by this. And I think WWE needs to take that into consideration. I'm not suggesting bring it down to 25 minutes of a show. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm suggesting is take it to 40 or 45 and allow those other 15 to 20 minutes to get distributed amongst other matches. Maybe do one fewer match within that other hour of content that you have. That way you don't have one match go in a minute 30 and another one go three minutes and 30 seconds. And one match can just go five minutes. Yeah. So these are all things they really need to consider. Yes, the backstage shit with Reigns was good. I didn't think either tag team match was solid. And again, I, I'm just going to repeat one last time. It took up so much of the show that it didn't give anything else a chance to breathe. Yeah, the the non-Roman stuff on SmackDown is becoming a problem. And you know, I've said for a while, SmackDown, I think it's the best the best wrestling show for a number of months now. But It's the most consistent by far. Yeah, yes. it, but the non-Roman stuff is starting to struggle. And I, again, I assume we would have had a big uh, Aleister Black, Big E thing going on. And I, I don't know if that would have taken up mm-hmm. some of the time or not, but it's got to be better this week. Yeah, it does. Now, I did get a DM slide here about this storyline. From Jonathan Purvis. Purvis? I'm sorry, man. I'm probably reading that <laughs> wrong. At Johnny, J-O-N-N-Y, five alive, seven. He said, guys, what do you think the end game is for the Reigns Uso story? Is it both Uso's fully heel alongside Reigns or something else? And I, I thought this was a really good question because it's not something that we've actually discussed at length on the podcast. It's really one, it's going to go one of two directions, right? It's either they both fully go heel and Reigns breaks down Jimmy just like he broke down Jay. Or Jimmy exists as this like kind of linchpin and like thorn in Reigns' side. Linchpin was the wrong word. Thorn in Reigns' side where he starts kind of unwinding the brainwashing and the gaslighting that he's been doing to Jay. And somehow it unravels in which Jay and Jimmy get over Reigns. I don't know if that's Jay winning the WWE Championship, which I, I, I would be very surprised. Or just them being able to get over on him and break away and do their own thing and become faces again. I don't know the answer to what the long-term story is, like the true endgame of it. But in the interim, I definitely think Reigns ends up winning out, breaking down Jimmy, turning him full heel, and them truly being a triumvirate of the bloodline. If I could choose something, that's what I would choose. Um, That's what I want to happen. It's not what I... think's going to happen just thinking about WWE in the recent history I think eventually we'll get Jay versus Roman maybe in some sort of non-title match on a Smackdown main event 
and maybe Jimmy interferes and Jay gets the win. And then Roman puts up the title, puts the title on the line for a match against Jay in one of the pay-per-views. Roman wins. That's and that's maybe the end of it. And then we get Roman and Heyman kind of on their own in the same light that we're getting Lashley and, and um, Bobby Lashley. I, I, I'm, I'm picturing them going, you know, getting rid of the hurt business, you know, with Bobby. I, I think at one point they'll 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 move the Usos off of Roman. I don't want them to. I want to do what you do. And I want the bloodline, all that stuff. Yeah. I'm just saying I could see WWE kind of following the same path that I think they've done with the hurt business and do it with the Usos. I mean, my booking, I have mentioned it before on the podcast. I'll reiterate it because that way, if it comes true, I look like a genius. <laughs> um, but the way I would book the damn territory is I would have the bloodline form fully with Jimmy kind of getting gaslit and brainwashed into fully being under Reigns control. And I would, in this draft that's coming up, which we're going to talk about at the end of this main event segment, uh, I would have New Day move back over to uh, SmackDown and build towards that storyline for WrestleMania, where New Day's back with Big E. Big E remains a singles competitor. New Day feuds with the Usos in the tag team division. Big E wins the Royal Rumble. And now you have Big E versus Roman Reigns at WrestleMania. And, you know, you have both teams, brothers in different ways, um, brothers and, and relatives and cousins and family, whatever you want to call it, uh, having the other guys back. They can have a tag team match on the show. They can all be at ringside. Um, they can be at ringside and then get banned from ringside. There's a million different things you could do. The Usos could interfere, then the New Day could fight them off. Mm -hmm. That's probably what I would do in the match itself. Uh, which would then leave Biggie open to actually go and beat Roman Reigns and win the title at WrestleMania. That is how I would book the damn territory. You make the bloodline as strong as possible because the New Day really from a trio is by far the strongest trio in WWE. And then you have them clash at WrestleMania. I, I love it. I mean, Biggie over Roman is my is my end point for the it's Roman the for the yeah. Roman reign. No pun intended. Um, I love a new day bloodline. I mean, we just, we just, we don't, they don't have a name. We just, we just call them the bloodline cause whatever. But I mean, like right. I they, to... they, they mentioned that they're the bloodline, but they never call them it. Yeah. Like, there's not bloodline I, shirts and there's not, there should be. Yeah. I, it didn't, I feel like impact or somebody, somebody or NXT, somebody did, somebody used that or something. Similar. I mean, Netflix has a, had a show called maybe, that. Um, yeah. but I like, I was trying to think if you could fit that into a survivor series match, you know, uh, uh, before the rumble or of some kind, I don't know, but Hey, I'm all about factions. I'm all about, I guess it's not a faction because it's three teams. I'm all about team matchups. I love Roman having guys by his side. I loved the hurt business. I love, New Day as a team. I, I'm all about that. AEW goes a little bit overboard with the teams, but I love I love team warfare. So I would absolutely love that. I think that would absolutely kill. Um, I, I I hope they keep the Usos around because they have been elevated to a spot where they have never been before. Roman said they've had one WrestleMania match. I think it was at the WrestleMania New Orleans that you and I both went to separately. Uh, so I hope they keep it going because they have been great. And, and they deserve to continue this going and get some sort of payoff. On my old podcast, Brian Campbell and I used to frequently talk about how badly we wanted factions and groups in WWE yeah. and how important they are. And, and we got a taste of that, you know, during the pandemic with Rollins had his faction that was actually pre-pandemic uh, and then leading into it, it continued. Zelina Vega had a group. 
And then obviously her business uh, existed. And I think two or three factions is great. But since you did mention AEW, holy shit, <laughs> it is so overboard. I mean, I think yeah. they have more factions than New Japan has at this point. And that is absolutely crazy. So, yes, you can, despite the Silver King loving factions and loving groups, you can go overboard. And that's what is happening in AEW. They are overboard on those things. Uh, OK, so let's move off the SmackDown portion of the main event and move over to Raw, where we had a WWE Championship contract signing on the show. Bobby Lashley was hanging out with his ladies and MVP backstage and missed his entrance for the signing. Drew McIntyre was in the ring telling a story about a Scottish king for some reason. Like, is that really the best material you can give your top baby face on Raw? It was bullcrap. Lashley, though, came out after that. He looked really super sharp in a double-breasted suit, entered with that entire entourage. He said he wanted a stipulation for the match that if McIntyre loses, he never gets to challenge Lashley for the WWE title again. McIntyre then accepted and said, I'll do that if we put this match inside Hell in a Cell. And Lashley agreed. There were two great touches to end this segment. First was Adam Pierce and Sonia Deville literally opening the contract and with a pen amending it live as both yes. guys were going over the stipulation. I I do not think I've ever seen that before. Now I'm I'm sure it's happened like in WCW or some or maybe in WWE too. I cannot ever remember seeing an authority figure go to that length to amend a contract live as people were talking. I thought that was a great touch. And then Lashley delivered a sick line to close the segment. McIntyre said, I'll see you in hell. Kind of corny. Lashley says, and I'll beat you there also. <laughs> Basically, because he's beating him everywhere else. And then to end the segment, McIntyre breaks the table in half with his Claymore. I cannot help think, Chris, about how much better this segment would have been without the stupid King story and the sword. The rest of it was literally a perfect contract signing. The corny elements that McIntyre brought were just completely unnecessary and took it from pretty damn cool to somewhat silly. Why can Lashley look like a total badass, but McIntyre has to be telling a story about a Scottish king and wielding a sword that in WWE has no relevance because you're not going to kill someone with it. This just goes to show it's a microcosm of how bad WWE struggles to book baby faces. McIntyre from right before the Royal Rumble until like a large part of his run as WWE champion had like nine months where he was super cool. And we were praising him on this show and we're like, man, McIntyre's the cool, badass baby face that WWE always wanted in Roman Reigns. And then all of a sudden over the last like four or five months, it's falling apart with stupid promos and face paint, the Claymore, the sound when he makes his entrance and shit like that. I just don't get why they're dumbing down Drew McIntyre for children when he was doing such a good job of being a legitimate badass. But again, other than that criticism, I really, really liked the segment because everything else that surrounded it was solid. Yeah, you, you hit on two points I was going to make. One was... Yes, when when MVP and Lashley threw out the stipulation of you no longer get to challenge for it, my first thought was, 
the contract's already written. You can't just change that. We they had a whole bit with Roman Reigns last mm-hmm. year where he had to adjust the contract, you know. And so yes, the fact that Pierce and Sony Deville looked it over and agreed to it right there, it's like a little thing, but it really makes a difference. So I'm really glad that they did that. And the other part was I could not help but think how this Drew McIntyre was nothing like the 2020 Drew McIntyre that we loved. First off, coming to a contract signing in his ring gear. <laughs> right. That is not something 2020 Roman Reigns would have no. done. I, I, I was you, praising you him praised, every yeah, you week. Praised him. Yeah, la- yeah. During every week last year saying, this guy looks like a million bucks when he's wearing street clothes, when he's wearing a suit. Get him on my screen and those things. He looks, He just looks better that way. Now, he was up against Lashley, and maybe they wanted Lashley to be in a suit and have have the women, and they they didn't want him to look too similar. I I don't know. If that was a reason, fine. I don't think it should have been. I think it just made Drew look a little weird while he's out there half naked while the other guy is in a suit. They had a contract signing last year. I think it was with Dolph Ziggler, maybe. He wore a leather jacket and like black pants. Maybe, actually, you know what, dude? It may have been a Lashley contract signing. Could have been. I don't remember, Um, yeah. And he, he wore a leather jacket and you were like, man, Drew looks like a badass. He looks super cool. And you're right. This was the exact opposite of that. And then the other, and then back then he didn't have the sword. You know, when he debuted the sword at one of the pay-per-views, I said on this podcast, I said, that is a really cool entrance. They need to save it for the big matches, the title matches, the pay-per-view mm-hmm. matches. They can't yep. use it all the time. Now he's using it on the way to a contract signing. So it means nothing anymore. And yes, the, the the promo about the king stuff, the sword, the, the visual of the sword was cool, but it was just kind of like weird. Like they, they they said it was mind games. And my first thought was, what is is now is Mag, is Lashley now worried that he's going to get stabbed in the match right. or something like, like that? Is he going like, to kill him in this match? <laughs> yeah. So, so like is, was, mur- is murder on the table inside Hell in a Cell? Yeah. So that was a that was that was a little uh, weird. And I, I I'll, I'll tell you this other thing. My my uh, my brother's in town this week. He watched Raw with me. He doesn't normally watch Raw live. Uh, so I was curious what he thought. He was very bored by current Drew as well. Um, so that was just another take on uh, another person's opinion on Drew. Uh, there were some things he actually really liked, some things he didn't. And, and Drew in this segment was one of them. And one other thing, I just talked about how I liked Lashley with the Hurt Business. I'm glad they're keeping all the women around him every week because he looks like a bigger deal when yes. there's a bunch of people around him. That's why the Hurt Business works. So I still wish Hurt Business was here, but continuing to surround him with people who are praising him it helps them. So I'm glad that they've kept that going. I got to say, you know, I didn't like when the Hurt Business broke up. I, no, I don't think anyone did. I would say yeah. 95% of WWE viewers hated that they broke up the Hurt Business. But sometimes you got to do like a mea culpa, right? And I'm not saying now that it was a good idea. But the way Lashley is able to carry himself as an individual without having two other dudes have his back for interferences or to fight his battles for him and be surrounded by the women and MVP even showing more confidence and more snobbery as his now de facto manager, despite all the old terms they used to have for what their job titles were in the Hurt Business. I don't know that it was as bad as we thought it was at the time. I think they've really, it's really allowed Lashley 
to grow into his role as the quote-unquote almighty WWE champion, which, by the way, I know that's a little corny too, but I like that also. Mm -hmm. Because it is his nickname, and it kind of all rolls off the tongue and works together. And when we're going into this match at Hell in a Cell with that stipulation, I got to tell you, man, I don't see, and we've talked about this ad nauseum. We talked about it last week extensively on why would you have McIntyre fight at Hell in a Cell? Wouldn't, if you're trying to put him over, wouldn't you want him to get the moment in front of the crowd that he didn't get at last year's WrestleMania? We thought he'd get it at this year's WrestleMania. They didn't do it. We figured, okay, they'll save it for Money in the Bank or SummerSlam. Well, if he loses to Lashley, he's not going to get that moment. And dude, based on what else happened on Raw, and we're going to talk about it in a second, I think he's going to lose to Lashley at Hell in a Cell, and this stipulation is going to apply. Yeah, I, I mean, I like the stipulation because they're they're telling us it's the end, and that raises the stakes a little bit. So you you know you're going to have a finish, and it's going to be done with. Like they just they've run this for several months now. It's nice knowing that it's going to end. And I'm with you. I I, I mean, we're not doing the picks for till next week, I think, but. Yeah, next Lashley's, week is the ultimate preview. I, yeah, I, I think Lashley's going to win as well. Um, so uh, we're, we're going to end up agreeing on that. But I, I, I'm glad they set the end point here, while also, which we'll get to, kind of laying the seeds for what I think comes next. Oh, yeah. Seeds were laid, and that's what we are getting to right now. So I figured we were done with MVP and Lashley for the show, right? And this is one of the reasons why Raw was so good. Because we got so many little unexpected things that happened backstage, setting up for storylines that we think are going to happen when fans come back. So just as we think we're done with MVP and Lashley, Kofi Kingston and Xavier Woods are walking into a locker room backstage where MVP approaches Kofi. Kofi says, Xavier, just go on. I'll talk to him. And he calls back to the viral video of MVP crying with Shad Gaspard, by the way, rest yeah. in peace to Shad, when Kofi won the WWE Championship at WrestleMania 35. He said Kofi has impressed him recently, but that Kofi mania ended too soon because Kofi let it end by not staying aggressive and in the mindset he needed to be champion. When MVP mentioned Kofi shucking and jiving, his words, by the way, not mine, with Xavier and him preferring to do that over actually going after gold, Kofi got really pissed. He said his family and friends are more important to him. And MVP came back and said the honor, prestige, and accoutrement of the WWE title are important too, and he should not overlook them. This was absolute fire. Now, Chris, I have a track record on this podcast and the podcast I had before. Sniffing out Kofi Kingston storylines. Not trying to go too crazy Barry Horowitz on myself here, but I'm starting to feel something because, dude, we talked about it each of the last two weeks. And I am starting to really believe, I just kind of threw it out there as a possibility two weeks ago. I am starting to really believe that there is a damn good chance that our guy Kofi Kingston wins the WWE Championship for the second time either at Money in the Bank, at SummerSlam, or by cashing in the Money in the Bank briefcase at one of those shows. There is no reason to do this segment on this show before Hell in a Cell 
if it is not going to pay off at a later date at a major pay-per-view. This was in every way a perfect backstage segment and your boys' juices were flowing after this. Yes, and Kofi's promo work over the last few weeks, maybe months, has really added more of an edge to it. He sounds more confident than he's ever sounded before, even during Kofi Mania, even as the champion. I don't know if it's because there's no crowd or whatnot. He doesn't sound like he's speaking to a crowd. He sounds like he's just talking like a dude. And it's coming. I think it really adds to the seriousness of his character when he needs it in those times. And this was an example of that. And, you know, it, it plays into the, the, the main event of or the almost main event of Raw, which we'll get to. But I don't think I don't at this point see Kofi winning at Money in the Bank or SummerSlam. But I do. It, it's weird. I could see him cashing in Money in the Bank, but I also see him in the main event of Money in the Bank. So, they want so the I, fan I, pop. They want the headline. Yeah. I'm telling you. I, 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 we'll get to that after Hell in a Cell. I think we have a better direction of where things go to. But for sure, uh, I don't know if they're going to pull the trigger on a win yet, but. They are very serious here about Kofi Kingston, and that is great to see. And Kofi, I think right now, honestly, might be doing the best work of his career, and that includes his run as champion. Let me book the damn territory one more time here, okay? You've already heard the thoughts about Kofi Kingston on the last two podcasts, how they could book it for him to win the title at Money in the Bank or SummerSlam. We talked about it ad nauseum. There's something I did not take into consideration, Chris. You know? WWE's going back on the road, right? Money in the Bank, SummerSlam, big crowd, SummerSlam in a stadium. You know what it would be a huge main event match for SummerSlam from the Raw side that we've wanted forever, truly forever? Bobby Lashley versus Brock Lesnar, right? Right. And wouldn't it be something if Brock Lesnar beat Bobby Lashley and then coming in out of nowhere is Kofi Kingston cashing in Money in the Bank and beating Brock Lesnar and not only winning the title with a cash in at SummerSlam, but getting retribution on the squash match from SmackDown two years ago. Well, if that's what happens, who is the who is who is Lashley fighting at Money in the Bank? I have no idea. That's the thing. <laughs> it, it, I, have, I, have no clue. I have no clue. What's that's the, that's that's the tough part of this because yeah. we're clearly feels like we're going to that. Actually, one small update here. Uh, MVP just tweeted out, uh, someone tweeted at him. I find it interesting that Bobby Lashley has to have a lot of bimbos bouncing around him. Doesn't make him look all that great. And MVP replies, very small of you to disrespect our friends that way. Strong, single, independent women. Bimbo for you would be an upgrade. So <laughs> good on MVP to, for defending the women. This is not Godfather and everything that was it's going on the there. Hose. It's not the no, hose. It's not the So, so no. uh, uh, MVP has several times, I think, stood up for the women on Twitter in the past. So good for him on that. If I'm booking the territory, I mean, I don't freaking know, man. I like. I'm just saying, would like, that, would, would that pop do, 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 what Would you have, what What about Kofi winning the, 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 the belt at um, Money in the Bank? Brock coming back for SummerSlam. Killing him. <laughs> a tri- no, a triple threat between the three of them. And, eh. Kofi, and Kofi comes out on top. And then with the next pay-per-view, we do a, we do a Lashley-Brock one-on-one. And I think, I think 
the way I book the territory, it gets you all the things you want to happen. Except for the very first step, which is who does Lashley fight at Money in the Bank. You figure it out. And they, well, they, they, that's their first pay-per-view Jeff in front Hardy. of a crowd. They he need can to, fight Jeff Hardy. They need, they need to have a big show for that. Now, we don't know who Roman Reigns is going to fight at that either. So we don't know what the main event for that show is going to be. That's the other thing they got to figure out here. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily have like the best possible answer, but... I mean, put Jeff Hardy in there, um, build no. someone else up as bring Keith Lee back. If he's clear, that's an option, yeah, a possibility. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. If, you, if you can get him, Damian Priest is another possibility. We have, we didn't see him tonight and he's not right. He's not right now involved in anything. I know we've been talking about the mid-card title picture, but he wins the number one contender. I, I, I don't think they're going to do that for the first pay-per-view. I think they're going to have Bobby Lashley fight somebody big. I think it's going to be Kofi Kingston. Now, could Kofi it could win be. it? I, I don't know. Maybe Kofi, maybe it's the first match of the show when Kofi loses and then he shows up in the money in the bank and gets in. I don't know. But totally. I, I, I do think 100%. 99%. That, that could happen. Kofi could Kofi. lose. There's an open spot because someone gets hurt from yeah. money in the bank. We're booking, like, we're booking like two, three pay-per-views ahead of I time know. here. We're I, going we, crazy. We, we both said we think Lashley's going to be Drew, but I think for, for certain we're getting Kofi Lashley at money in the bank. I, I would be – maybe I'm booking myself into disappointment if like – this is all for that's, Kofi. Yeah. If Kofi just challenges Lashley at Money in the Bank and loses and that's it, I'm still going to be happy that he got elevated into the main event. So you're, you're going to have to remind me in case I shit on it that I said, you know what? I Just the fact that they're treating him like a main eventer is what's important. Yes. Him winning the title really isn't that important. But the possibilities that they could, the, the storylines that they could give us with Kofi winning the title again whether it involves Lesnar, which is maybe a little bit unlikely, or straight up involving Lashley, those are really exciting and pieces of booking that you're going to send fans home really freaking happy from two really important 10-pole pay-per-views, by the way, that are going to be happening after your competition ends from the NBA playoffs and before the NFL season begins. You have a very short, tight window. They will be going up against the Olympics, but they have a very short, tight window where they can hit a couple home runs and Kofi Kingston is one of those triggers that you can pull to hit potentially even a grand slam. Yep. I I just, I like seeing Kofi. It's, it's, it's different. It's fresh. I'm excited to get to it. Yeah, it is a lot of fun. One more thing before we get out of the main event here, it's actually a DM slide from Sean McDermott at I'm bored brother. He said with the reported news of the draft, the WWE draft happening August 30th and September 4th. I would like to hear your and Chris's analysis on what could make the draft better viewing from the last two attempts than just reading names off lists and the debacle of the fake war rooms. Also would like to know if there's anything with roster changes that could improve either show mainly raw, or is it just wishful thinking as the booking is the issue and not the talent. So there's a lot there. I don't think we're going to have time to really address all of that. But what I really wanted to talk about is the fact that there is a report from, I believe it's the Matt Men podcast, which are breaking a little bit of news recently. So congrats to those guys that it is planned as of right now for the draft to be August 30th and September 4th, as opposed to after the beginning of the new year of the TV contracts, which is usually like in October, one month before Survivor Series. So If they do move the draft, it is a huge win for WWE. First of all, they're attacking it on the same week, I believe, as the. it's definitely the first college football Saturday of the year. 
It may be the first NFL Sunday. Maybe they're pushing that back a little bit. I'd have to check on the dates. I didn't clearly do my research uh, before we started talking about it. But it will be in competition with NFL, at least preseason and college football season. So it's good to get a couple marquee shows in those slots. And then on top of that, I while I love the draft in, in theory, and I like that they shake up the rosters, doing it one month before Survivor Series has never made a shred of sense because <laughs> no. all of a sudden you're getting a, a totally new roster together and they're defending their new brand, but they have no reason to love that brand. They have no reason to have gelled with the people backstage and fight together and all that type of shit. So if they move it and they move it up, I think it's a great idea as far as how they can make the draft better. I thought it was better last year, significantly better than it was two years ago because those war rooms were just so terrible that really anything but that would have been an improvement. But to answer your question, the way to do the draft is the way WWE used to do it, where you have all the talent gathered together, sitting on folding chairs in the backstage area. Maybe you give them couches or you make it look a little bit nicer because it's 2021. And people get drafted and they're utterly surprised and shocked. And they react to it and it feels natural and real. And then once people get drafted, you set up matches that are appropriate. And don't go overboard with things like switching up champions. Do it if it's appropriate, that's fine. But like the double switch they did with the Raw and SmackDown champions changing brands while they had the titles and bullshit like that. I just found it to be kind of like eye rolling. So I think if you avoid some of those kind of trite things that they always do in drafts, I think it can be very successful. And I love the idea of moving it up to late August and early September, if that's what they do. I, I mean, I'd move it up as soon as you can. I mean, I think they really need. <laughs> they need it. They, yeah. they, they need, you know, this is why sometimes we had the, the superstar shakeup coming out of Mania or whatever a couple of years back. Um, in terms of what, I mean, because both rosters need to be freshened up, especially the women's sides. Got to just get some new faces in there and, and, and do some different stuff. The way to make the draft better, I think you nailed it. It's not necessarily the execution of the draft. It's how they portray the impact of the draft. It's exactly what you said. Everybody gathered together and reacting to what it's going to mean, not do cutting a promo on something and saying, I'm going to bring I'm going to bring catchphrase to Monday Night Raw and just right. kind of do whatever, especially if you're not having authority figures in terms of, high, you know, it made sense the first time with SmackDown Live with Shane and Stephanie doing it and say what you will about the McMahons. At least it made sense for a draft and they acted like they really wanted these talents and it made them feel more important, which is what you always need. If you're not going to do that, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out the best way to format it. Do you just have essentially a random drawing and, and names come up and you kind no, of you can't do go that. with that? I, I mean, like, yeah. is there is there a... Well, look, they do, have do we, two people who are kind of in authority figure That's the roles. other thing I was wondering. Are we going to get the split up of Sonya Deville and Adam Pierce for that? that that's Maybe. the other thing I'm wondering. And I would love it if, like, though. Pierce, they say, you know, Pierce is on the state, uh, you know, uh, on the phone backstage, and, you know, commentary, Jimmy Smith cuts to backstage, and Pierce is like, all right, well, I'm going to go put this in right now. And he submits something or, or goes goes and tells someone who maybe Stephanie's the moderator. And then they announce that Raw has just drafted this person. And what they say is that Pierce is on the phone with USA executives and DeVille is on the phone with SmackDown executives. And that's it. And sometimes they show them, sometimes they don't, you know, and they just flip it up, you know, throughout the entire show because that's really what it is. Or you have DeVille and Pierce in the same room, both sitting with laptops 
maybe there is like a business person in like a, like a suit next to them and they're kind of yeah. commiserating before each pick. That's all you need. You just want it to feel a little bit more real. It doesn't need to be this whole drawn out thing. And we certainly do not need fucking Cletus there. I promise you that. So as long as they avoid that shit that they did two years ago, I think it's going to be okay. But you're right. Not only is it a great idea to move it up because of all the things I mentioned, but these rosters for badly need to be shaken up because they're just so uneven. Like, look how many tag teams are on Raw. And that's a good thing that they're starting to develop that division. But there is so few on SmackDown. Both brands, after releasing a shitload of women, need new female superstars. So they're going to have to call people up from NXT. And you can't keep having Bailey and Banks and Bel Air all on the same show. So at least one of them is going to have to move. You're talking about potentially the return of Becky Lynch. The potentially, I was going to say the return of uh, Lacey Evans, but she's nowhere close to coming back. Uh, potentially the return of Keith Lee, hopefully his medical stuff, if that's what it is, gets sorted out. We haven't really, by the way, had a long conversation about that on the show. This is not the episode for it, but hope maybe we will next week on the ultimate preview for Hell in a Cell. But there's so many different personnel that need badly to change brands and just to freshen up rivalries and feuds and things we can get because these really have run its course for myriad reasons, including injuries, uh, late last second changes, COVID took a lot of people out of storylines, the WWE had to do some repeat stuff. And it is starting to not necessarily get repetitive, but they're starting to run out of options. Right. That's for, it, for both that's shows. What it is. Especially, I mean, actually my brother pointed out to me today, I think SmackDown only has five or six women on the roster now after there's the like cut, none. Yeah. Not including the tag team. So yeah, they need to, they need to just switch things up a bit. And by the way, this draft, if it is August 30th, I believe Chris, you can maybe quit look while I'm uh, saying this. I believe that would be the Friday after SummerSlam. And we talk all the time that WrestleMania should be the end of the season. And the next, maybe not the next night on raw, but like the following week should be the start of the draft, change up the rosters and start your season fresh. Well, coming out of a big event like SummerSlam, if they do the draft the next week, it would feel exactly like that. Like the season ended at SummerSlam, and now you're freshening things up. Yeah, it's uh, SummerSlam is August 21st, 2020. So, yes. It would be the week out. It'd be the week after. The Friday after. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, on that note, real quick, before we get down with everything else that happened on SmackDown and Raw, SummerSlam is officially, even though we all knew it because it was reported, at Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas, as you said, on Saturday, August 21st. It's really weird because obviously SummerSlams usually, all pay-per-views, are usually on Sunday. And I was under the impression that they moved it to Saturday because there's a Manny Pacquiao, Earl Spence boxing match in Las Vegas on Sunday. But it turns out I was wrong about that. The fight is Saturday. So I have no idea why WWE is doubling this up on Saturday, because best I can tell, there's no event or holiday on Sunday or Monday. So to me, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I, maybe they felt they were more likely to fill a football stadium for a non-WrestleMania on a Saturday. That's that's my only... Um, or maybe Vegas is that much busier on Saturday than Sunday. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's Vegas specific. I don't know. Uh, but on that note, one last thing, starting with Hell in a Cell and moving forward, I actually was able to report this on our Getting Over Twitter account at Getting Overcast. WWE is officially moving back to the 8 p.m. Eastern start time for pay-per-views, which we on this podcast are not fans of. No, I I was a big fan of the 7 o'clock pay-per-view that is over in two and a half hours. That's probably the one thing I'm not looking forward to with fans coming back is that we're going to be back to 
four hour plus pay-per-views. Well, I don't know. Listen, if they if they start at eight and go three hours, I'm fine with it. But outside of WrestleMania and SummerSlam, if they start doing these in like four, four fifteen and they start them at eight o'clock, it's gonna kill me. I just I'm not gonna be able to stand that. Yes. All right, let's talk about everything else that went down across SmackDown and Raw. This week, we're going to actually start with Raw here because we have a bunch of stuff still to talk about involving New Day, Kofi Kingston, and the tag team division. So the show opened with a tag team number one contendership match, New Day versus RK-Bro versus Viking Raiders versus T-Bar and Mace versus Lince Dorado versus John Morrison. So does that make sense? No, but we'll explain it in a second. AJ Styles and Omos cut a promo on all the teams in the ring. And the highlight, of course, was Riddle telling a story. Dorado was alone because Grand Metalik is apparently injured. The Miz came out in a wheelchair and Morrison entered the match on his own. So tag team battle royal, two teams represented by individuals. One team, the guy's out for like nine months. I don't understand why they're still treating them like a tag team. But okay, that's a conversation for another day. RK Bro combined for three immediate RKOs. And then they go to commercial. We come back from commercial to more raw promotion with all of the teams just standing in the ring, waiting for them to ring the bell while they finish the promotion. That was very the, weird. For the rest of the show. And little things like that are just so unnecessarily stupid and just take you out of the show. But okay, we get to the match. Morrison used the drip stick to, I can't, that's a phrasing <laughs> saying, uh, used the drip stick to blind and eliminate Dorado before T-Bar and Mace took him out. Riddle saved Orton and ate High Justice. Then everyone teamed up to eliminate the Ascension. Um, I mean, T-Bar and Mace. The Viking Raiders took out Riddle and Woods. Riddle jumped in again to save Orton by eating a trouble in paradise. Orton took out Kofi and the Raiders threw Orton over the ropes to become the number one contenders. They were celebrating backstage when Styles said they weren't real Vikings and Omas ate one of their turkey legs, which I'm sure you loved because you liked all that turkey leg shit. Uh, This took up the first 30 minutes of the show, which is not necessarily a bad thing when it comes to Raw because it is three hours. It's unique for Raw also to start with a tag team match. I thought it was entertaining and a well-booked match considering the RK Bro storyline was still, you know, enhanced during it and a fresh team in the Viking Raiders won. So for me, there's really no real complaints about the match or anything that happened, but the first 10 minutes with all those promos were a little bit slow. It was, but I I actually appreciate it. I think I'm not a big fan of like when AEW just opens up with a tag match and we don't really kind of get the table set. Right. So I, I like that they set the table here and AJ, you know, tried to knock them down a peg, but also put them over at the same time. And unless I misheard, did you talk about the RK bro t-shirt thing? I didn't talk about the t-shirt, but it okay. is fantastic. Go I was dying. Yeah. So, so uh, I tweeted about R- it. Riddle says, it Riddle says, Riddle says, I'm wearing two shirts, two RK Bro shirts. One, because Randy doesn't wear shirts. And two, because Randy doesn't wear pants. <laughs> and <laughs> I, we, I, I, we've said this before, but I swear to God, it feels like the entire RK Bro setup existence is solely to try to get Orton to break. And you're just looking at him the whole time, waiting for him to crack a smile when he shouldn't. And there's times when he leans down and puts his hand over his mouth. But man, Riddle is killing it here. And he called Randy Mr. Slithers on, on mm-hmm. the, the snake on the shirt. Um, that was hilarious. That that was got me in a really good mood to start the show. So shout out to Riddle for killing that promo. Hey, would you say that Matt Riddle has it? He's got something going here. 
That's for sure. He's got two t-shirts too. It. He has it, as I have been saying for a long (laughs) ass time. Now, as far as the match, uh, you could argue that the Raiders should probably be the ones to take the titles off AJ and Omos down the line, just because of their size, it would make a lot of sense for them to two on one, be able to beat Omos theoretically. And if they were going to do that, then they probably would have had a different team win here because there's really no reason for them to just run through the Viking Raiders. But if we aren't going to get that, which it doesn't seem like we're going to, then RK bro obviously has to win the titles off AJ and Omos. So I'm glad they're saving that whether for money in the bank or some of them, but I guarantee you, you, Chris and everyone listening, I said it last week. I've probably said it ad nauseum on this podcast. When Riddle is in front of crowds, he is going to be massively over. He may get one of the strongest reactions out of anyone, maybe the strongest reaction in front of a crowd out of anyone on Raw. Everything with him has been spot on. And not not, not everything, I shouldn't say that. There was a couple periods of time where it, it wasn't working perfectly with Riddle. But over the last 12 months from his debut on SmackDown to now, the guy is putting on banger matches. Most of what he does backstage is hysterical and really, really good. And even if you didn't like it before, like Chris, RK Bro has taken him to a totally different level. And it's somehow given new life to Randy Orton, a multi-year, multi-decade veteran in the industry as well. Everything about this works for me in every possible way. RK Bro might be the second best thing going in wrestling right now behind <laughs> to Reigns. Yeah, like <laughs> it's legitimately must watch, you know, the last three, four weeks, however long. It's really funny. This. And yeah, it's like you said, it's kind of like what I said at the beginning of the show where we're kind of in purgatory right now and we know the next pay-per-view coming up is not the big one. I think we're going to get RK Bro winning the tag titles at Money in the Bank. I think for that first pay-per-view back, they're going to want to have some title changes, have some big moments. And I think that's going to be one of them. So uh, maybe SummerSlam, but I think these guys are red hot right now that they want to get them in front of a crowd as soon as they can. Yeah. Maybe with the titles as well. So uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's tremendous, tremendous stuff. And now yes, Matt Riddle is one of the must see things on, on, on a wrestling show. You got to put the titles on them for sure. And I'll tell you, Riddle is approaching I, I listen to me when I'm saying this. I'm not, I'm not trying to say he's exactly the same person, but he's approaching Kurt Angle territory in that he can play a totally comedic goofball type of character, but you still completely believe him as an ass kicker yes. because he has that background angle, obviously the Olympic background riddle, obviously the MMA background, but you saw even in the match that I'm going to talk about in a second, because riddle did have a singles match on raw. He went from being goofy backstage to a total ass kicker in this match to the point that Jimmy Smith dapped the guy up because of he did some MMA shit outside the ring. So I just love that Riddle is kind of on that path. Now, he's turned, and he's really largely comedy, where Angle turned to comedy eventually. Riddle hasn't necessarily been established as a badass because he's never really been a heel. He hasn't been a heel so far in WWE. So it's not identical, but I think you guys understand what I'm saying when I juxtapose them, where it's there's a lot of similarities in the skill set, the ability, and the future, I think, for Riddle using Kurt Angle as kind of like a barometer for him. But let's talk about that main event match that I mentioned. We had Kofi Kingston 
against Riddle. It technically wasn't the main event of the show, but it was the final match of the show. There was another funny backstage segment with Riddle asking Orton to be road buddies when they start touring again. Orton had him zip up his mouth and then threw the key into the garbage to keep him silent. Uh, Woods distracted Riddle with a trombone early in the match, which brought out Orton to make sure he had Riddle's back. Kofi took out Orton at ringside with a sliding dropkick, so Orton dropped Woods onto the announce table as retribution. Then Kofi took out both of them, uh, Riddle and Orton, with a trust fall. Kofi then hurt Riddle with a climbing, twisting hurricanrana and a single foot stomp for a near fall. Kofi got a frog splash, and then after that, Riddle got really aggressive outside the ring with tie kicks, even dapping up Jimmy Smith, as I mentioned earlier, who said on Mike that he respected the MMA moves and he couldn't help himself but dap him up because it was awesome. Uh, Riddle hit Orton's draping DDT, which Orton loved. He went nuts for it outside. And then Orton told him to finish him. Riddle did the full RKO, pounding on the canvas, all that type of stuff. But Kofi dodged it. Then Riddle ducked Trouble in Paradise. But Kofi countered Bro Derek into the Trouble in Paradise for the win. This was a tremendous match and honestly a great piece of booking. Kofi obviously had to win based on everything we talked about in our main event segment with him and MVP and that entire storyline. Riddle looked fantastic in the ring. I was fixated on the match, like to the point where I didn't, I stopped taking notes on it and I just like had to rewind and go back and take notes during the commercial break. I actually think I'm going to go with like 3.75 stars and a B plus. I almost wanted to give it an A minus and, and a four star, but man, this was an awesome match for TV. These guys were great together. You put this on pay-per-view with like five more minutes and this is an A match for sure. I loved it. Yeah, it was exactly what it needed to be. And it was the prime example of how a guy can lose a match and not be hurt by it. Because, I mean, Riddle lost two matches, technically, if you want to talk about it. He lost two matches on Raw and came out of the show looking better than he came in. And that's exactly how you want to book things. And because... You thought Riddle did have the match and Randy told me he had the match, but he got too confident. He did the Randy Orton pounding on the, the mat thing. And Randy said, no, no, you're letting him breathe. You're letting him breathe, which is interesting because in kayfabe, you could say that about Randy's character all the time. And, and, and so, hey, Randy, you're the one who does it. You're the one who lets the guy get up. But that's because Randy knows what he's doing when he's doing RKO and he's doing Randy Orton stuff. And it showed that. Riddle can't just always do Randy Orton stuff to get the win. I know they used each other's finishers a couple weeks back, but you can't do the whole character unless you're them. Randy Orton can do that. Riddle can't. He takes a loss, but looked really good otherwise. And we continue to have a little tension between the two in a competitive sense, Randy and, 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 and Riddle, but we know they're not going to break up. They're just going to like have to work through some stuff here. It was, well, it's it was like great. it's like he took a step forward and a step back in Orton's eyes. Yeah, and that that's part of telling the story. Totally, you nailed it. I, I just thought it was fantastic because not only was Kofi booked well the whole show, but RK Bro, despite losing twice to your point, was still booked good and strong yep. and entertainingly the entire show. So, man, they just absolutely nailed it with them on Monday, and and that's a large reason Kofi and RK Bro is a large reason why Raw was good on Monday. And another reason, I got to say, was the women's booking. I I'm shocked, man. It's been really terrible recently. <laughs> but we got a tag team match, Rhea Ripley and Charlotte Flair against Nikki Cross and Asuka. 
And the way it came about was Flair interrupted Pearson DeVille backstage because she wanted her loss to Nikki Cross stricken from the record. They refused, of course. So then she demanded a rematch with Cross in like a singles match. Ripley came up and she said she wanted one too, but she wanted it because she respected Nikki, not because she was dissing her. And then what Pierce and DeVille did, instead, they made the typical, especially for the women's division, opponent tag team match with Cross later picking Asuka in kind of a fun backstage segment as her tag team partner. Asuka and Cross, by the way, had a great NXT women's street fight back in the day that you guys should all go out and see. They are awesome working against each other and on this night together as well. Flair later told Ripley to follow her lead in the match and Ripley scoffed because she's the champion and Flair should follow her lead. So we get to the match. It was typical, especially at the beginning, can they coexist, you know, type of shit, uh, with the entire story being about the odd pair as opposed to it being a tag team match. But it did get interesting. Flair tagged in Ripley with a chop across the chest. Ripley then tagged Flair back in with a pat on the head like she was a child. And I legitimately laughed at that. I thought it was quite funny. Uh, Cross nearly beat Flair on a sunset flip, and Asuka nearly got the win with a sliding knee. Ripley hit a northern light suplex with the bridge for a near fall, and then kicked out herself of a pinfall after the hip attack by Asuka. Ripley and Flair ended up brawling. Flair countered Riptide into an eye gouge and then hit natural selection on Ripley, which led Cross to run over to her, get the cover for the 1-2-3, and celebrate with Asuka on the announce table. So this match got over 13 minutes. I think it was 14. And it was really well wrestled despite portions of the match, the focus being mostly on Ripley and Flair. But unlike the beat the clock shit, everyone came out of this looking good because mm-hmm. Cross and Asuka both got near falls before Flair aided in the finish. So I thought this was the best women's segment top to bottom across, I think, both shows, Raw and SmackDown in weeks. And that's not saying too much because this wasn't spectacular, but it was really damn good start to finish from the backstage segment to the final bell. I fully enjoyed it. It goes back to what we say a lot, and that is squash match type things don't help anybody. The only the best way to make somebody look good is to have them wrestle pretty good. They don't have to wrestle for 30 minutes. You can give them 10 minutes, five minutes. And if they look pretty good, that helps. Brock Lesnar would have been helped if Ricochet and Kofi Kingston had put up a fight in their matches. They didn't. It didn't look, it didn't help Charlotte and Rhea, the Nikki Cross two minutes crap we got for the last couple weeks. It helps them because now Nikki Cross looks like a formidable opponent. And so a win over her means something if that happens down the road. So now they've got, you know, Asuka and Nikki Cross won because of opponents broke up, but they were in that match. This what they weren't just gifted a win and didn't deserve it. They were right there neck and neck for it. And that makes a world of difference. So yes, this is exactly how you're supposed to book it. Much needed step in the right direction. So then we got in the main event segment on raw Alexa's playground with Shayna Baszler. And I'm not going to do what y'all think I'm going to do and just freak out because somehow folks, I truly cannot explain it to you. Maybe I will. Maybe I'll come to it as I break this down. Somehow I liked this after weeks of us talking about this going nowhere 
and it being boring and Lily and all this shit being really stupid. I'm not necessarily saying it's not stupid anymore. But somehow I was legitimately entertained by this final segment. So you had Alexa Bliss recounting the bad stuff that Baszler said about Lily last week. Nia Jax later told Baszler backstage she needs to be careful, but Baszler refused to be intimidated by Bliss and a quote-unquote stupid doll. So I guess they're not broken up yet. After all, I thought they were going to be. But Baszler gets into the ring because Alexa's playground this time was in the ring. We talked about last week and weeks prior, it was stupid that it was backstage. But they do it in the ring and... Baszler walks in, tips over a rocking horse, and my eyes roll. I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be so stupid and terrible. (laughs) And Bliss says, hey, we can be friends again. We can all be friends again if you just apologize to Lily. Baszler scoffed at that and blamed Bliss and Lily for all the interferences recently for Reginald and Baszler, all the matches they've lost. Then Baszler grabs Lily, says it's a stupid doll, so Bliss attacks her. Then Baszler put her foot on Lily as if to threaten, like, I'm going to kill this thing, like it was a puppy or something, and stomps on its face. The Thunderdome flickers, and Baszler just dips out of the ring. And she starts walking up the ramp to, like, back away from the situation, and fire starts erupting all the way, step-by-step up the ramp, and then on stage, throwing her into the backstage area. I thought that was the end of Raw. There was more. Then backstage, Baszler had to dodge falling objects, and flickering lights while muttering, trying to remind herself that it's just a stupid doll. She locked herself in a room and stacked like a chair and a couch in front of a door and then looked into a mirror and saw Lily behind her, turned around. Lily wasn't there, turned back to the mirror. Lily was there. She freaked out. She kicked the mirror. It shattered into pieces. There was a piece of mirror left. Basil looked into it and Lily was right there behind her shoulder. Raw goes off the air. Chris, I I don't know. I think I'm pretty good articulating what I do and don't like in wrestling. I don't know why, but I, I really liked this. And it was maybe just it subverted my expectations to such a degree where I thought this was going to be absolutely dog shit. And it just wasn't. And therefore, I think it's better than it actually was. But I thought Baszler was fantastic in the acting she did backstage, selling that she knows she shouldn't be scared but she is because weird shit's happening around her. How can you avoid not being scared at like all this weird stuff that's going on? I don't necessarily think it's a great storyline. I don't think it's going to necessarily go anywhere that I'm going to love. But as an individual segment, it's easily the best of the Alexa shit that we've gotten. And I like that Baszler's kind of doing something on her own. So I thought this was going to be a 0.0. It wasn't. It was probably like a... 6.5 or something, if I was giving it a grade, I surprisingly liked it. Yeah, I, I, I was, I thought it was fine. And first off, you're right. Credit to Shayna Baszler for doing some pretty good work there. You know, she's someone they don't trust a ton. I I think on the mic or just in promo stuff. And she's had plenty of slip ups and, and just kind of mistakes before she did a really good job here. And if you're putting her into a story like this, She's going to have to carry a lot of it with her own promo work, much like Randy Orton in the Bray stuff. You know, mm-hmm. it's going to be a lot of talking and a lot of doing things she doesn't typically do, which is wrestle, um, which is what she normally does. So this was pretty good. The second reason I thought it was pretty good is that production wise, it was 
much better than the time that Randy and Bray did this. There was that time that Randy walked around the ring in a light, you know, a light stage thing fell in front of him and it looked super corny and it looked like it was plastic and a couple things fell and whatever. It looked really bad. This looked pretty good. Like it was a little creepy and no cameras turning, but the way stuff was falling and the way they just packaged it was a lot better. So I like this. I don't know if it's going to go anywhere, but you know, it's been more than a year now where I wanted them to do all kinds of stuff like this when you're in the Thunderdome and you don't have fans and you can try different things and see what works and try some fun stuff. This is pretty good. You know, I've been saying for since WrestleMania two months now, let's do something with Alexa Bliss. This seems like finally the start of actually doing something. It's something. Uh, yeah, I don't know what it's going to be, but it's definitely something. So we've been pretty positive, I think, about WWE. Now that we're talking about everything else that's kind of going on, we got a bunch more stuff still to cover. We'll try to get through it expeditiously. Uh, I'm just telling you there's a little bit of negativity coming, at least from this, at least from the Silver King's standpoint. So let's stay with the women's division and talk about what happened on SmackDown. We got Carmella versus Liv Morgan. Mella in a promo said she's the most beautiful woman in WWE. Liv on a promo called Carmella a seven at best and said she'd make her a 10 with a boot to the face. I don't even know what that means. Morgan <laughs> hit a backstabber with her feet, uh, then a slingshot into the middle turnbuckle. Carmella then won with the cone of silence in like two minutes and 30 seconds. There was some okay action here, but they never got a chance to do anything. The match being that short, two and a half minutes, when five minutes is short, two and a half minutes, obviously, is half of that. <laughs> it's absolutely pathetic. To me, this was a total attitude era women's match and women's booking in every way, except for the fact that there weren't bra and panties as a stipulation. Both of these women, Carmella and Liv Morgan, deserve better. And both of them can do better if given the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, Carmella's, I mean, it's it's weird because Carmella's character since she's been this new thing is basically her beauty is her whole character. I mean, the, the Sasha stuff didn't really deep into stuff. I, I don't know. Like, I get Carmella doing it if that's the character because it fits with what she's been doing. It's a completely new angle from Liv, who we haven't seen a ton of, and again, just lost her tag team partner, so I don't really know if there's going to be a story in this or not. Um, and Carmella is a former champ, Money in the Bank winner. You know, she should be able to dispatch Liv Morgan. But two and a half minutes is ridiculous. Again, this goes back to what I just said. Carmella looks better if they have a longer match. And it's a good match. I mean, it's got to be a good match. Right. But Car Carmella doesn't really gain much from this. The only thing I gained from this is that she's going to really lean into even more as her physical beauty is her character. And by the way, I don't know if the only reason for this match being 2.30 was WWE only wanting it 2.30, or if, as we mentioned earlier, time was cut from this because Roman Reigns and his storyline got 57 of 120 minutes on the show. So it, that plays into it as well. If you're giving that much time to a singular storyline, then things are going to get affected. This wasn't the only short match. There was a men's match that was very short as well. But this was one of two, and it was the only women's match on the show. So whereas you have over on Raw, 
the women's match getting 13 to 14 minutes, plus a very long, you know, drawn out main event segment involving the women. Over on SmackDown, there were two women's segments, but the only match gets 2.30 and the other women's segment, I don't know, probably got five minutes or something like that. So it just goes to show that, man, the, the women's booking, it's really in a massive rut and it's been in a rut for months now, but it's especially bad on SmackDown and it has been for a while. Quick DM slide here from John Strickrod at Sticky Unleashed. He says, why does WWE insist on painting all female villains as shallow and egotistical beauty queens? It's insulting to think that anyone gives a shit about the beauty of a wrestler. Women can be complicated villains like a Roman, but not according to Vince. Very frustrating. So I don't totally agree with that. I certainly do not think all female villains in WWE are shallow, egotistical beauty queens. I I don't really know exactly where you have that. Bailey is not that uh, flair, despite you may think she's beautiful. Uh, That's not her gimmick. And that's not really the gimmick of most women. However, I do agree that to think anyone gives a shit about a woman proclaiming herself as the most beautiful, as, as the basis of her character is ridiculous. I mean, yeah, there's been men's char- male characters that do the same thing where they're the most handsome and they use their looks to get by and all that type of stuff. But those are stupid too. It's okay on occasion. And it's okay to use it maybe as part of a storyline if it's rare, but it was the entire gimmick of the entire segment and match and Liv Morgan referring to her beauty and saying she's a seven. It just, the whole thing just didn't sit right with me. Yeah, I mean, all female villains are egotistical because that's what all villains in wrestling are in general. I mean, and... Like the Sasha stuff was not was it was not necessarily about their beauty. It was more about their confidence and who's the oh, best. Oh, it wasn't it was at all about of, their beauty. It, it yeah. wasn't. It was not a good feud her and Carmella, but it wasn't directly tied to their looks. I don't think in terms of the story they were trying to tell. Um, but overall, there is, I think, a, a problem with a diversity of character from the female wrestlers who are villains um mm-hmm. charlotte is the only one who's kind of doing something different and she her gimmick is i'm the best that's kind of what it is she's Cru- cruella Deville right now i need to see that movie i'm gonna i think i'm gonna see it tomorrow what 101 dalmatians no cruella oh is there a new cruella movie oh I didn't yeah know. they did a prequel with uh, emma stone i was like i was like do you not know who cruella Deville is? no like, yeah no 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 actually it look, it, it, the reviews are pretty good i think i'm gonna see it tomorrow so stay tuned okay for that um so I, I think there's I I I, I kind of get the question I, if the question is all heel women dressers in WWE are basically the same character that's largely true which I, I think overall still is but they're a not problem. shallow beauty but queens. it's but it's not the beauty queen I don't, I don't know beauty queens or whatever but it's not all about their saying. looks the, this Carmella thing was straight up about their looks and I don't think that's a good look for WWE. No, I don't think so either, but I also don't think it's one that they repeat that much. That doesn't mean that it's good when they do it, um, but it's not I, like I, I think Bianca, Sasha, Carmella are all largely playing the same character in 2021. And that's the issue, I think, is that they're, they're, they're all kind of the same thing. And you now think Bianca from, and Carmella are the same character. They not not now, not not if Carmella's leaning into this beauty stuff, but for a 
the feud that Sasha and Carmella had felt like the exact same thing that Sasha and Bianca had. Oh, I disagree with that completely. Yeah, I, no, Sasha and Bianca was about confidence and empowerment. And so I, I don't agree with that necessarily, but my, my, big, my bigger issue is this storyline on its own, this Carmella and Liv Morgan, we're spending way too much time talking about <laughs> it, but um, this storyline in particular is a bad storyline and it's yes. something that WWE goes back to far too often. But I do not believe, I do not agree with our DMer here who says that it's every heel is a beauty queen who's shallow and egotistical. It's that's not true. That's not they do not use I am beautiful as a gimmick or as yeah. the main crux of a storyline in WWE um for for the all the feuds. It's just not the case. I mean it's this one is it's happening and it's certainly happened before many times, but it is not a regular occurrence. None of Becky's feuds were about that. Uh, I I disagree with you about Banks and and Bel Air and certainly Banks and Carmella. I don't believe either of those were about that either. Ripley and Asuka wasn't. None of Asuka's feuds were about that. So I don't agree that that's a, a thing that WWE is doing with all of the women. But is it something they go back to too frequently with one feud or another here or there? Yes. Is it probably something they're going to go back to now that Eva Marie's going to show up? It probably is. And now we're going to get one of those on each show that may not be a great thing. You can be beautiful without your beauty being your your gimmick. And, you know, we're going to have to see how WWE handles that. But let's move on. Let's talk about Bianca Belair, since you mentioned her. Uh, she said people like Bailey have been trying to keep her down her whole life. Again, so this story is not about beauty either. It's just to cl- clarify. Uh, and she can stand for a lot of stuff. She can stand up against a lot of stuff, but not someone disrespecting her and laughing in her face. Belair challenged Bailey at Hell in a Cell, and then Bailey started laughing at the prospect of that. And sure, first she started laughing on the Titantron, and she was doing so in a room covered with photos of her and her accomplishments. So she's clearly getting a big head. And then her laughing, her head laughing, spread to every screen on the Thunderdome after she accepted the match. I don't know, Chris, have you ever seen the movie Virtuosity with... I think it was Denzel Washington and Russell Crowe. You're going to be surprised, but a movie you're asking if I've seen, uh, once again, I have not seen. God, man, where's your culture at this point? This is ridiculous. It's, it's, uh, with, it's with Cruella, apparently. Ugh, man. So I know this is a deep cut virtuosity. Hopefully some of you have seen it. But Bailey was acting like a psychotic 80s or 90s movie villain, kind of like Russell Crowe's character in that movie, although the people are nothing alike. And I couldn't even go into what that character is. It would take probably 15 minutes for me to explain it. But anyway, it popped me because of that. It felt like it was a reference. Even if it wasn't, it was similar. I thought Belair was okay in this segment. Her promo was boring. And WWE did her no favors whatsoever by giving her no background noise while she was talking. It's like she was just talking to an empty building. They put this woman over in the main event of WrestleMania, but they've been booking her horribly. They're not doing much better with Rhea Ripley either. It did nothing to make me excited for the match or think Bailey was deserving another title opportunity, but I didn't find it offensive and I did at least like the laughing gimmick. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, the visual was cool. That was kind of cool how it, how it, that worked. I don't really understand how Bailey's character has that power. I, I don't know exactly why it happened, <laughs> right. but it looked cool. But again, this is what I've been saying for several weeks now. Bianca, is it, it's so much better when you just get her in the ring and she does something. It, it, it's just so much better than a promo that she cuts. We've heard her story. You told it. That was a WrestleMania moment. 
you can't keep going back to the well of people are, were doubting me. It's been two months since you won the championship. Like, we, 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 we got to just see you do awesome things. That's what we want to see from you. Again, I know there's only a handful of women left on the roster, so I don't exactly know how much they can do at the moment. But yeah, the whole the whole thing overall is just kind of whatever. But hey, at least they kind of did a cool visual. Over on Raw, there was one more Eva Marie vignette. They only did one on this episode. And it tied together all of the ones that preceded it. She said she was going to show everyone a side of her that they've never seen before. Then WWE announced that Eva Marie is re-debuting next Monday, which I think is such a strange decision considering it's the go-home show <laughs> for a pay-per-view. Why would you not just debut her the Monday after the pay-per-view? We'll see what the storyline is, if there's a plan. Nevertheless, I'm going to enter this somewhat open-minded. There's a rumor that there's a twist to this gimmick. I'm not going to say what it is because I don't want to do a spoiler alert because we've gone on long today. Um, but if that twist happens, it could get a little bit interesting. I am kind of curious to see where this goes. You know, I don't hold that high hopes for Eva Marie being anything that we want to see. She was never good on the mic. She was never good in the ring. But they are clearly putting a lot of effort behind this. So we got to be open-minded, in my opinion, and just see how she debuts and what the first couple of weeks are like. Yeah, I mean, like, like I've been saying, it's it's the same deal with Alexa and it was the same deal with Alistair Black before. Just, all right, well, just do something then, and then I react. Until then, I don't really have any thoughts. I assume she's not going to come in to be a normal wrestler. I'm not a huge fan of saying she's coming next week. I don't think anybody's going to tune in for Eva Marie. I think it's better if she has a surprise return, so to speak, whether it's a, to cut a promo, to interfere in a match or something. I don't know. Not a big deal. Either way, we'll see what happens next week. And then I'll finally have some thoughts on this. For sure. Uh, Seth Rollins was interviewed on SmackDown about his attacks on Cesaro. Rollins said he doesn't owe anyone an explanation. And then just ended the interview with Kayla Braxton when she asked about Cesaro returning. That was literally all that happened. And the only thing we got from Rollins on the entire show. I thought it was kind of weak because I'm under the assumption, Chris, I don't know if you are, that Rollins against Cesaro is going to be the second Hell in a Cell match now that we've established Lashley and uh, McIntyre is going to be the first one. So I just kind of wanted a little bit more. There's two shows left. So I guess as long as Cesaro is back this week and they start booking it, we're okay. But this really did nothing for me on Friday. No, I, I don't think Seth's promo stuff has been all that great in this whole Cesaro thing. It's kind of whatever. I, again, like I said before, like we like seeing Cesaro and South Rollins do wrestling things. and. We haven't gotten that in a couple weeks now since Cesaro is out. So I don't really I don't have any strong thoughts because it it wasn't it wasn't a super long segment. It's just kind of a whatever segment. And Seth's doing a decent job, but I don't think he's doing an amazing job. And once again, that was that was how I felt. All right, let's move to the mid card title pictures on SmackDown. The IC title was on the line. Apollo Crews defending against Kevin Owens. Commander Aziz attacked Owens backstage and ran a road case into him. Owens fought anyway like an idiot, like babyface, uh, selling the injured ribs every time uh, he tried and failed to do offense during the match. Cruz hit an Olympic slam outside. Owens did get a released German suplex, but Cruz got his knees up to block a senton bomb. Owens dodged a frog splash and nailed the pop-up powerbomb for a near fall. Cruz came back with a Death Valley driver on the ring apron and rolled him inside for a clean win without hitting his finisher. Sami Zayn then ran in with a halluva kick, 
and screamed in Owen's face that it was karma for Owen's kicking him while he was already down. I guess a month ago at this point, uh, during before, during, and slightly after WrestleMania. The match was unspectacular between these guys. Sammy's attack reignites a feud that I thought ended at WrestleMania two months ago. And it's a feud that we've seen a half dozen, if not more times already in WWE. I love Owens. I love Zayn. Cruz is, you know, I'm happy about him and I think he's doing well. Aziz, whatever. But I found it really tough to get excited about any of this. And I just felt it was largely blah, like largely a failure. Like I've seen this before. I don't really need to see it again. Yeah, I mean, I thought we were going to get more into Apollo Kevin Owens. I don't know if Biggie, uh, the Aleister Black release changes other plans. We'll have to see. I think I think this next coming SmackDown will really tell us more on where things are going. But yeah, I mean, Owens, Zayn, I'll, I'll watch the match for sure, but I don't really know what the story is right now other than actually Sami Zayn was at the Montreal Canadiens game tonight and Kevin Owens tweeted that he was bad luck and shouldn't be there. And then the Canadians won in overtime to clinch the series. So Sammy got the last laugh on that. Nice. <laughs> Other than that, um, I don't know what Apollo Crews does now. We'll have to kind of wait and see. But with a lot of other things on SmackDown, I think it's kind of we have to just see what they're going to do now because I think a lot of directions got changed with the cuts and don't really know where they're going yet. Yeah, I mean, Black and uh, Big E were clearly uh, going to feud and... I don't know. I think it was weird to even make this an IC title match on the show. You have a pay-per-view coming up. Why not just save it for the pay-per-view? I know that they've been doing that and putting some title matches on TV for ratings and all that, but it just seemed rushed for the match to happen in the first place. The booking was bad. Now Cruz doesn't have a challenger because you assume Owens is going to be focused on Zayn, and I can't imagine them doing another triple threat. Big E now has nothing to do. So yeah, it's just all pretty freaking weird top to bottom. Uh, over on Raw, the United States Championship number one contendership was on the line between Ricochet and Umberto Carrillo. Sheamus was ringside wearing a Rip Hamilton mask to protect his broken nose. And the challengers both scared him by feigning like they were going to flip out of the ring before the match began. Ricochet attacked Carrillo before the bell because his back was turned, but it wasn't sold as a heel move. It was just him being aggressive. Carrillo did a really cool bullet style tope suicida. Then there was an absolutely ridiculous Spanish fly by Ricochet off the ring apron to outside that ended up resulting in a count out, double count out, because neither guy could get back in the ring after the move. This is an extremely rare occasion where I actually really liked the count out finish because it came after a huge, dangerous, devastating move that commentary sold like death. And because commentary sold it as big, the idea that those guys couldn't get in on a 10 count and the count was done immediately, worked for me. Also the fact that a triple threat for the title has seemed obvious for a while. So if this is how they're getting to that, that works for me as well. All in all, it was a short match. I would have loved for it to be longer, but I actually liked the booking. And to my surprise, it continued a number of really strong segments on Raw. Yeah, the match was good. I just I don't connect with Ricochet or Carrillo and they're Seamus is really trying to carry this entire story on, on, on the mic. He's essentially the only one talking. They bring him out on commentary to talk about him, too, because neither of those guys get promo time or aren't good on the mic to kind of explain their 
story behind everything. This is the kind of match where I feel like it would have been a lot better for all the guys involved if there was a crowd. Um, because if you're just going to, if you, if, if there's not much of a story, but you're going to do a bunch of cool wrestling stuff, you need a crowd to react to it, to kind of get it over. And I don't think the Thunderdome is conducive to that. So does this mean we get a triple threat at the, at hell in the cell? Probably we'll see, but all in all, I'm just, I'm still kind of just, yeah, uh, on this whole story. All right. Uh, the street profits were commiserating backstage on SmackDown when Chad Gable Said he's been evaluating their tape. Profits seem to be down, and he wants to manage them back to greatness. They laughed at the offer. Gable was pissed at the disrespect, and Otis later told them that they should apologize. They told Otis that Gable was holding him back, and he attacked both of them at once. The Profits were then on screen a third time in the show, uh, late in the second hour, and basically set a challenge for next week against Alpha Academy. I just thought this was a fine way to kind of create something out of nothing. Again, there's only four tag teams on SmackDown. So when two are feuding, or I guess there's five technically now, but uh, when two are feuding, the other two basically have to feud because otherwise they have nothing to do. But this was okay. And I think that's going to be a really fun match. Profits against Alpha Academy. Something I'd love to see. I really, I really like this. It, how, how rare is it you get three backstage segments on a show for to a set up a match next yeah. week? It wasn't it wasn't like this was coming up and they were building to it and we have no it was complete it was to set up next week. Great little bit of storytelling. We've got some animosity, we've got a backstory now. So now we go into next week under you know the table's been set. We understand why this is happening and how everybody feels and I'm looking forward to it. It's just, it just like I I'm so surprised they they did something they gave so much Normally this would be one segment and then oh we're going to have a match next week cuz I'm pissed off. They told a story here with three different segments. I, I, I thought this was really well done. It was really the only other thing on SmackDown that got time. Yeah. When you when you actually break it down, like the only other thing they actually gave good time and attention to. So, yeah. It and was it was to solid. promote a match for the next week, too. Very weird. Right. A non-titled TV match. Tag yeah. team match. Yeah. So credit to them on that. Uh, also on SmackDown, we had Shinsuke Nakamura against King Corbin. Again, uh, Rick Boogs introduced Nakamura. And Pat McAfee was standing on the announce table, rocking out two boogs, which was really cool. But then two minutes into the match, this is the other match I was telling you. There were two matches on SmackDown and I got two or two and a half minutes. Two minutes into the match, Corbin folds over Nakamura for the clean win. Boog stopped Corbin from regaining his crown, which Nakamura then took possession of again. So again, like I said, the two non-Usos matches on the show lasted less than five minutes. I don't even have a take on this. It was extremely repetitive from the last few weeks. And it's the third time Nakamura and Corbin have fought in 21 days. In fact, since I don't have words, someone else has some words for this one. I was pretty bored, despite me loving Nakamura and loving Rick Boogs. Yeah, this is like old raw, old WWE terrible booking where you just have the same match over and over and over. This does not make me care at all for the eventual pay-per-view match between these guys you i don't i don't care i think boogs is great he's really added i if, if, if he wasn't in this i think i would hate this it's it usually entertaining because i can't wait for him to get back on my screen and also see how pat McAfee reacts so maybe boogs comes out of this feud looking better than anybody but overall yeah just do something else hell make boogs and nakamura a team let them go after the tag team titles or put them in that division I, I like the idea of this crown being a gimmick 
and Corbin no longer being King Corbin and maybe the end result being a King of the Ring tournament. But because it's it just repetitive... I, I know you want it. It ain't going to happen. I'm sorry. I know. That's what I'm saying. Because it's just this same thing over and over again, it's pretty clear we're not getting the King of the Ring tournament, which, is, which I'm disappointed about. And it seems like the end result is going to be Corbin getting his crown back, which means he's still going to be King Corbin going on like year three. Or I mean, it feels like year 100 at this point. So I, I just want this to end. Make the guy Baron Corbin again. Change up his gimmick. I've said this a couple times now. Turn Corbin face because you got to do something somewhat different. He's stale as shit, but he's really talented in the ring. He's actually a pretty good promo. And I think if you could figure out a way to turn him face, then when you turn him back heel, people will buy it again and it'll be fresh. But if you never turn him face, you never give him the opportunity to do anything different. This character is stale and boring as shit. Stop with the King Corbin. Maybe it, maybe at a minimum, Nakamura wins this, takes the crown, burns it or something. Corbin changes his name back. That would at least be a slight success. But I'm, I'm, I went from very optimistic about this, very optimistic with the idea of King of the Ring to pretty pessimistic that this isn't going to go anywhere. Uh, let's move on back to Raw. Jeff Hardy against Cedric Alexander in a singles match. Hardy cut a taped promo saying, veterans used to be respected backstage, but all Alexander does is run his mouth and he needs to learn respect. Then Alexander cut a taped promo, basically proving Hardy right, <laughs> that he didn't respect them. Uh, it should be no surprise given their talent levels, but these two had a really fun short little match that got a good bit of TV time. Alexander taunted Jeff, so Hardy caught him flying, then hit a twist of fury and a swanton bomb for the win. Then he celebrated Jeff in Cedric's face. I was a bit surprised because I actually thought Hardy was in this match to put Alexander over. I'm sure there's going to be a rematch. I'm sure Alexander will beat him at some point. But it was really good to see Jeff get some work in. And it's solid, regular singles matches and tag team matches like this that make good wrestling TV. When you have a show like Raw and you have three hours, not everything needs to be a long, convoluted, long-term storyline. And most things in WWE aren't long-term storylines. But if you can give us unique individual matches like this one, and there was another match that we got later in the show that was similar, then I think overall that really helps the show be successful because it fills in a lot of those other gaps with what otherwise would have been repetitive shit is instead fresh and new and just something different. This was different and I liked it. Yeah, it was different. I, 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 I feel like Cedric Alexander is taking too many losses for being overconfident. Like that's clearly the story they're telling, but it's also the same way Riddle lost in the match at last lost in his match. So. Eh, uh, we'll see. I, I, I just think Cedric's taking too many losses. I like it was fresh. It was different. Credit to that. I was interested going into the match for sure. I just thought at the end of it, I was like, ah, man, Cedric's taking another loss here. It's kind of a, uh, not great, but it's Jeff Hardy, so not not the worst thing in the world. We got a late DM slide here as we're taping the show. From Ben at MattRat103. This is actually referring back to the Alexa Bliss playground segment, Chris, but it's something that you say all the time that you didn't actually say on today's show, so I figured you'd appreciate me reading it. He said, Alexa's playground was a weird segment to end the show with, but at the same time, it's not like you can cut from that to Jimmy Smith at the desk, like, 
Wow, interesting development on Alexa's playground. Well, coming up next, we've got singles action between Mansoor and Drew Gulak. Don't blink. I think that's a pretty funny uh, DM, and he's right. That's one reason why it was good to be in that main event segment. And you always talk about how they go from like weird fiend stuff to like they would go back to the commentary table and Tom Phillips would like no sell it or just be like, all right, well, that was weird. Let's move on and talk about this other thing as if that didn't just happen. So we didn't do that. Yeah. The show ended on it and it kind of worked. Yep. And if I recall correctly, commentary was silent for nearly the entire thing. I think yes, there was, was one moment I heard somebody say something, but that's what was needed as well. It was a problem when Randy Orton almost murdered Bray Wyatt and commentary was like, oh, <laughs> so, so, uh, uh, right, they should be, should we call I, the cops I, right now? Cause someone just got yeah, burned so alive. I, I think it's, I just cut them out, let the story tell itself. They mostly did that tonight as well. And I think, I think it, I think it helped. Well, speaking of Mansoor and Drew Gulak, which is a thing I actually just said, uh, Mustafa Ali approached Mansoor backstage, told him not to assume he'd be in a fair fight because not everyone in WWE plays by the rules. We got Mansoor versus Drew Gulak in a singles match. It was a pretty good short match, and the segment with Ali backstage was good and short as well. Uh, as I said, the match was quick, with Gulak trying to beat Mansoor by grabbing the tights, but Mansoor countered it into a single leg trap for the one, two, three. And while I'd love to see Ali in the ring, he's a great wrestler. He's done some good work in this role over the last two weeks. I'm pretty curious to see where it goes with Mansoor and Ali. I don't know if they'll become a tag team or if they'll end up feuding. And no matter what happens, Ali needs to come out of this with a little bit more gravitas and actually step up and have some matches and be a part of Raw again at a minimum, like what Ricochet and Umberto Creo are doing. But hopefully even beyond that, because Ali is a guy who could be a mid-card champion. He could be a great half of a tag team champion as a mouthpiece. He has unlimited potential. And I hope this is the very beginning of them beginning to realize it. Cause obviously retribution failed out, uh, flamed out. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, I like Mansoor. I, I like Ali. Um, I hope they didn't just put them together because they're two Muslim guys, but right. you know, I, I think they can, I think they can do something here and we'll see. It, it, it's good to just get something a little bit new, a, a low card type of deal. Drew Gulak's had a couple of those, the Angel Garza stuff. So it was a little thing. It was a short thing, but it kept the show feeling a, a, a just a little bit fresh by seeing somebody somebody different. And then last and certainly least in WWE this <laughs> week, we got Elias versus Jackson Riker in a singles match on Raw. Elias cut some piece of shit promo about seeing the fog of war in Jackson Riker's eyes, but knowing he's not a trustworthy partner. Riker then attacked Elias from behind and threw his guitar up the stage. He had a buzz cut. He lost the long hair. He's been balding, so that's probably a good idea. And he had the beard all trimmed, looking like all of those bland white dudes that WWE tried to get over in the mid-2000s. I don't know if you remember the people I'm talking about, but there was like one after another dudes like Mason Ryan and, and guys like that that all looked exactly the same or pretty close to each other. It was like after the brand split. Uh, Riker dominated Elias, tossing him all over the ring. And Elias purposely took a countout loss after a throw spine buster. So WWE really decided that this guy, Jackson Riker, should be a face just because he's a veteran. And the gimmick is that he has PTSD or something like that. That was literally the only character development for this guy. I mean, not only 
do I strongly dislike Jackson Riker as a person, but he has done nothing in the ring or on WWE television to warrant a singles baby face push right as fans are about to come back. Get this shit off my screen. Zero point zero. Point zero. My only thoughts are this entire thing is baffling for the reasons you said. And also Riker with that haircut looks exactly like Sean William Scott. The actor Similar, yes. From, yes, he did. The actor, the actor from American Pie, from uh, Dude, Where's My Car? It looks, the exact, it looks exactly like Sean William Scott. Couldn't get that out of my head. That was my only other thought on this whole thing. Yeah, it was just so like generic. He has the American flag on the tights. What are they doing? It was just, it was really bad. I figured we'd save it for last year. Um, Anyway, so wrapping things up real quick, as I said, look, Raw just exceeded, maybe it was as simple as Chris that it exceeded expectations so massively because there were just so many things on the show we just broke down that I actually liked. And when you break down the mid-card problems and the women's division problems over on SmackDown, it really fell massively below my expectations. Now, I don't necessarily know that in one week's time, when we're talking about this upcoming SmackDown and the go-home Raw for Hell in a Cell, I don't know that we're going to feel the same way. Both could revert back to what they normally are. But they at least got closer to even this week, and that's the first time in a while that I guess they've been this close. With Raw, what I felt putting on a pretty entertaining three hours, and SmackDown needing some improvement after what's been months upon months of really consistent, good storytelling and TV shows. Yep. Raw finally has something that's must see, I think, and that and that's RK Bro. So it's good. And the Kofi stuff, if it develops. Yes, yes. And and where the Kofi stuff's going for sure. And there's they're get they're also just simply getting fresh people on the screen. Like as little as four weeks ago, maybe five weeks ago, we would not have seen Mansoor, Drew Gulak. Maybe we'd see Cedric Alexander, but it would be with the Hurt business. Um Carrillo, Ricochet, Nikki Cross was out. And obviously Rhea Ripley is relatively new. Kofi being in the main event is new. All of this stuff is new. So they actually have done a pretty good job refreshing Raw. And obviously that's not even mentioning RK Bro and the fact that the Viking Raiders are back on top of all those other things. So Raw just feels like it's kind of moving in a unique, kind of interesting direction here. And I think they're probably going to squeeze just enough out of some of the new things they're doing where if that draft does happen at the end of August, beginning of September, it'll be a good time to transition the rosters and get fresh blood on both shows. Speaking of shows, Chris, there's a lot of getting over wrestling podcast coming your way over the next two weeks. Here is the schedule as it is officially laid out by the Silver King. On Wednesday this week, we will be back with NXT TakeOver in your house Ultimate Preview Edition. I also did get the opportunity to watch NJPW Dominion, their second biggest show of the year that's not the G1. And I will break down both of the main event matches, the co-main event on Wednesday's show. So NXT TakeOver In Your House Ultimate Preview and NJPW Dominion Final Two Match Breakdown on Wednesday. We'll be back on Saturday with a recap of AEW Dynamite, which airs once again on Friday. And then on Sunday, immediately after it goes off the air, we will have instant analysis of NXT TakeOver in your house. And a reminder as well that before in your house, before the kickoff show begins, we will once again have a live 
go home show, uh, final kickoff preview. I can use as many words as you want for NXT TakeOver in your house live on Twitter spaces. The way you join us on Twitter spaces is by following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. We will schedule the show probably on Saturday or maybe earlier in the day Sunday. Set yourself a reminder or just show up a half hour before WWE's kickoff show and the Silver King and possibly vintage Chris Vanini, if he can catch up with NXT, will be there to break down the entire card start to finish in a short 30-minute format before the action begins on Peacock with their kickoff show and, of course, NXT TakeOver in your house itself. So we do that live ahead of every pay-per-view. We are on Twitter Spaces. You can listen to that on iOS, Android, desktop, or mobile web. But once again, you need to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And while we're talking about previews and ultimate previews and instant analysis, know that everything I just said about TakeOver in your house, the same is true next week for WWE Hell in a Cell. So be sure to stick with the Getting Over Wrestling podcast for all of that. And lastly, before I get out of here, it's been a long show, so that doesn't change one fact. It's It is all about the five here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. That means we need you to head on over to Apple Podcasts, drop a five-star rating and review to let people know how much you love this show. Every rating, every review helps us in the Apple Podcast ratings, and I would greatly appreciate all of you doing that for us. That's it. That's the show. It's been a long night. We taped this Monday right after Raw went off the air, so it was a little bit in some analysis style for you guys. But the Silver King will be back Wednesday, and then once again Saturday and Sunday. It's a four-show week here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So I'm going to say sayonara for now and leave you with three final words. Bye for now.